We're still in Hebrews chapter 12. If you'd like to look there, I'm going to read for us verses 15 through 17. You can follow along. Your Bibles are on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. For a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. We recently spent about a month looking at Hebrews 11 and examining the lives of the heroes of the faith. We saw the kinds of things they did and their motivation for doing them, We looked at how we could follow their example, but in today's text we have an anti-hero, or put another way, we have a hero of the anti-faith. Our author gives us examples in chapter 11 of the heroes of faith so that we follow them, but in this chapter he gives us the example of a hero of the anti-faith so that we won't follow him. Talking about heroes, my childhood hero, one of them anyways, was um, Mickey Mantle. Played for the, yeah, <laughs> the New York Yankees, and boy, I wanted to be like Mickey Mantle. I'd practice batting with my right, batting with my left. I wanted to be him. When Mickey Mantle was dying of liver cancer after a lifetime of profligate drinking, he gave a press conference the handsome young man with the beaming smile was gone. The bulging muscles weren't there anymore. Surgery had left him weak. The tracksuit that he wore just hung loose around him. Mickey looked at the room of sports writers and he said, God gave me a great body and an ability to play baseball. God gave me everything. And I just... Then he became very somber and he said... I'd like to say to the kids out there, if you're looking for a role model, this is a role model. Don't be like me. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to us about Esau. Don't be like him. Children of God, if you're looking for a role model, here it is. Don't be like Esau. Last week we looked at verses 12 through 15 and we stopped there. There's a problem with stopping at the end of verse 15, and that is that the author didn't. In the original language, the end of verse 15 is not the end of the sentence. It continues right on through verse 16, and both verses are governed by the the verb that introduces the sentence, which the NIV translates as, see to it. It's literally watching over. Believers are to watch over one another. Now, that doesn't mean that we're the morality police. We don't make ourselves judges over our fellow Christians, still less over people who are not Christians. Our author would recoil from that idea. We don't watch over others in order to see their sins. We watch out for others because we want them to see God and his grace. We don't go to people and say, here's where you're wrong, but here's where God is. And here I am too, and both of us are for you. We're on watch duty. 
the duty to keep spiritual watch. And that places us in concentric circles of responsibility. That first circle includes only one person, me. I must keep watch over myself and make sure that I don't miss God's grace. The next circle includes those nearest me, my family, my close friends. The next circle is comprised of fellow church members and then fellow believers generally. I have no business going to the people in the second and third circles with advice and counsel, and especially correction, if I'm not taking advantage of the grace of God for myself. Now, uh, and yet, we're to watch over each other. Now, on a purely practical note, it's hard to watch out for people you never see, which is why our author told us back in chapter 10 not to give up meeting together. We need each other more than we know. Now, there's a very clear structure to the sentence that runs through verses 15 and 16. It's built around a threefold repetition of a pair of words in the original language. A different translation might help us um, grasp that structure. So I'm giving us one. Watching out for one another, lest anyone miss the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up should cause trouble and many be polluted, lest anyone be sexually, in a sexually immoral person or a worldly person like Esau. Now, I'm not certain, but it seems to me that the author of Hebrews had a kind of progression in mind when he wrote this sentence. He mentions four dangers to be avoided, ending with godlessness, better worldliness in the worst sense of the word, But the point of origin, ground zero for this epidemic of sin, is missing the grace of God. Missing, falling short, or the original idea is to come late for something. Missing the grace of God has consequences. We may think what happens between God and me is nobody else's business. But that's like saying, whether I fix my brakes or not is nobody else's business. I'm the one driving. It's my car. If my brakes fail, I'm the one who suffers the consequences. Yes, but your failure will impact others. may even hurt them very badly. Missing God's grace will do the same. It leads to events that cause trouble and defile many. We should put it on our screensavers and stick it on our refrigerators. Don't miss the grace of God today. Don't do it. Missing God's grace has consequences. A Christian dad was trying to explain um, Lent, the season of Lent, to his daughters. He had three daughters. And he was trying to tell them why some people give things up for Lent. And when he was done, his 11-year-old declared, I'm going to give up sweets. And her 8-year-old sister chimed in, me too. But the 6-year-old sat thinking. And her dad says, as I looked at her, I could see she's working the angles. And finally she announced, I'm going to give up consequences. (laughs) But you can't give up consequences. And there are consequences for missing God's grace. Let me talk from a pastor's heart for just a second. Over the years, I've seen people miss the grace of God. I've seen it. I've done it, and I've seen it. Sometimes I've tried to help them. Sometimes, frankly, I've been afraid of rejection and have kept silent. 
Sometimes I've only realized what's happened in retrospect. But I've noticed that when God's people miss his grace, they often fall out of church. And when they do, people close to them fall as well. St. Peter says that we're like living stones from which God builds his church. When the mortar around one of those living stones dries up and crumbles and it falls to the ground, the stones next to it are exposed and immediately become vulnerable. Without care, they may fall too. If you miss the grace of God, someone's going to get hurt. And it might not just be you. Don't miss the grace of God in your life. Now remember the three lest any clauses that this sentence is built around. Lest anyone miss God's grace, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, lest anyone be sexually immoral. To the readers of this letter, the first readers of this letter, that final phrase would have sounded unusually blunt, would have been hard on the ears. It reads literally, lest anyone be a pornos. A pornos was not just someone who had been involved in some immoral sexual relationship. A pornos was someone whose identity was built around his or her sexual desires. Our author knew that a person who misses the grace of God on this end might end up here. And that's especially true in our culture, where Hollywood loves the pornos and glorifies him or her. The pornos is the lead character in hit movies and some of TV's most popular shows. Years of glorifying the pornos on the screen has normalized the pornos on the streets. People have actually come to think the media's emphasis on sex and its wild exaggerations are the norm. That everyone is a pornos, or should be. Things were not all that different when this letter was written. Greek society, at least in many places, was a pornos culture, just like ours. Most scholars believe that the first readers of this letter were expatriate Jews living outside conservative Israel and confronted daily by a highly sexualized culture that took sexual freedom for granted. But our author knew that the pornos is anything but free. He or she's caught and dragged away by sexual desire into places it's not good to go. The pornos is among the least free of all people. Now, let me hasten to add, our author does not say that sex is wrong, as we're going to learn when we get to chapter 13. Sex is God's idea And it's a very good thing when it's experienced within the boundaries in which God placed it. It's a very good gift, but a potentially dangerous one when it's experienced outside the boundaries God designed for it. You might give your 16-year-old son a car for his birthday, which would be a really great gift. But if your son does not keep that car inside the boundaries designed for it, that is, if he doesn't stay in his own lane, that really great gift may have tragic consequences for him and for somebody else. So it is with sex. Sex is good. Being a pornos is not. Not at all, whatever the media says. I know a young woman raised in the church by Christian parents whom I had not seen for many years. I've only seen her once probably in the last 10 or 15 years. I did, however, see her brother from time to time. And once he was looking for a particular music CD he wanted to play, 
in a case that was just packed with disc, and he came across a complete season of Sex in the City. And he said apologetically, oh, that's my sister's. His sister was probably a sophomore or junior in high school at the time. When he was gone, I said to Karen, I can't believe her parents let her watch that show, let alone own it on DVD. Don't they know it's going to affect the way she thinks? And of course, it did, along with lots of other influences. And she made some unfortunate choices that she's going to have to live with for the rest of her life. Ours is a pornos culture. And if we don't watch out, we may get caught in it. Now, it's unclear whether our author thought Esau, whom he mentions in the next phrase, was a pornos. He doesn't exactly say so, but Jewish literature at the time was filled with negative depictions of Esau. For some reason, they just hated Esau. Jewish writers attributed all kinds of sin to him, including sexual sins, although the Old Testament doesn't mention that. The Old Testament does, however, picture Esau as godless. The word our author chose carries the idea of being worldly in the worst sense of that word. It's derived from a root meaning accessible, and it pictures a person whose life is a free zone for things that God doesn't like. When you hear the term worldly, don't think nasty or brutish. If Esau were alive today, he'd probably be the guy with a thousand Facebook friends. We know he was a a hunter and an outdoorsman. He's a real man's man. He's also a ladies' man. He had a way with women. Esau may have been a great guy to have for a neighbor, the guy who loans out his rototiller to you and invites you to go fishing and always has a great story to tell. You like the guy. He's just godless. He doesn't have God in his life. Esau is the anti-faith hero. He's the opposite of the faith heroes like Noah and Abraham and Moses, whose stories are told in chapter 11. Noah altered his actions in the present because he believed what God told him about the future. Abraham left the good life he already possessed for the future life God promised. Moses renounced the comforts and privileges of his present life because he was looking ahead to his reward. These were people who bought into the future God had promised, even when it was paid for by making sacrifices in the present. But Esau sold the future. He sacrificed it for the sake of the present. Look at verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights, or his birthright, literally, as the oldest son. You can read the story in and I would encourage you to do so in Genesis chapter 25. Esau had been out hunting, and he came back famished. In those days, there were no packaged food. You couldn't open up a bag of Wonder Bread and pull out some peanut butter from the cupboard. There just wasn't anything like that. So when Esau got home and found his twin brother Jacob had a pot of stew cooking, he wanted some. His brother, who was a sly kind of a guy, And his twin brother, by the way, just by moments, if he'd been the first, he would have had the birthright, but he was the second one by moments born. His twin brother said, okay, but sell me your birthright. Now, we need to understand what Jacob was after. In the ancient Middle East, the birthright of the firstborn male was very important. It qualified him for a greater share of the inheritance. Under Mosaic law, the oldest son got twice as much as anybody else. And it endowed him with the blessings of the covenant. And Jacob wanted it. 
But Esau, he thought, you know, it might be decades before I come into my inheritance. Decades. Why should I wait? And I can't eat the blessings of the covenant. He didn't believe in some unseen future, but he did believe in the smell of that stew. So he traded his birthright to his brother right then and there. He bought the present at the cost of the future. That is the opposite of faith. The problem with the present is that the moment you reach it, it becomes the past. And those who are foolish enough to trade the future to pay for the present will accrue interest in the form of regret. Think of Mickey Mantle at at that news conference. He had had recently undergone a liver transplant. It was big news because he destroyed his own liver by drinking and then as a man in his 60s was given a liver transplant. And one of the reporters at the conference asked him if he had signed a donor card. And Mickey answered, everything I've got's worn out. Although I've heard people say they'd like to have my heart, it's never been used. He paid for a present that he couldn't possibly keep with a future that he couldn't afford to lose. So did Esau. Look at verse 17. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing... He was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Some of the things that you honestly regard as all important today. Got one of those things in your head right now? Will not be important at all to you in a year from now. Maybe in a week from now. That's the way life works, and it's good to keep that in mind. And some of the future things that you totally disregard today will be all important to you tomorrow. That was the case for Esau. You fast forward a few years, and the birthright he once scorned seems the most important thing in the world to him. He blames his brother for its loss, complains to his father of the injustice, but there's not a thing that he can do to change what he'd already done. Now let me wrap this up. People often speak of learning to live in the moment. Have you heard that kind of talk? We need to learn to live in the moment. It's a very new age kind of thing to say. In fact, it has its roots in Buddhism. And there is some real value to learning to live in the moment. But here's what you need to know. You can't live in the moment by living for the moment. In fact, that ruins it. You can only live in the moment by living for God. The one who lives in all moments. You can't live in the present by forgetting the future. You can only live in the present by entrusting the future. That is your future self to God. Esau is the patron saint of the I want it all and I want it now generation. But he found out how harmful that attitude is. Esau's mistake was not that he lived in the moment, but that he lived for it. And that's a fool's game. Living for the moment destroys faith. And it eventually robs a person of hope. There's a couple more things to say. First, it must be conceded that Esau derived real benefit from the bargain he made with his brother. But he didn't derive lasting benefit. 
Now, if you are deliberating an action, should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I buy this? Should I not buy this? Should I go here, move there? If you're deliberating something like that, don't just ask yourself if the thing you're thinking about is good. Ask yourself if the good will last. One of the chief characteristics of wisdom is the ability to distinguish what is lastingly good from what is only temporarily good. Next, Esau's mistake was not only that he traded the future for the present, but that he tried to substitute the material for the spiritual. He was, to use the language of verse 16 again, godless. God was absent from his life. And because God was absent, things that should have been absent from his life were present. We had a cat at our house for 16 years. And... I never wanted a cat at my house. But she was there for 16 years. And as soon as she died, the mice invaded our house again. Remove God from your life and all kinds of other things come in. Because God was absent, there were things in his life that should never have been there. For example, without God's help, Esau was unable to rule his passions. His passions ruled him. God made us spiritual beings with spiritual needs. When we overlook that fact, we try to satisfy spiritual needs through physical means. And that simply doesn't work. People often don't recognize the spiritual hunger in their lives for what it is. And so they try to satisfy it with the wrong kind of fear. Some people try to eat their way to happiness, literally, like Esau. But they will arrive at heart disease long before they enter the state of happiness. Some people try to fill their lives with experiences. They fly here, they fly there, they try whitewater rafting and luxury cruising. But it doesn't change. There's this emptiness that doesn't get fed. Other people try to fill that gnawing emptiness with things. They try little things like shoes and and books and then bigger things like computers and television and then houses and boats, but even their emptiness has a hole in it. And everything they stuff into it drains out. I mean, they keep the husk, the house, the television, the shoes, the books, but the satisfaction disappears. Some people try to substitute success for spirit And they find out too late that the corporate ladder is a lousy place to live. Some people think that feeding their minds will satisfy their souls. Their intellects grow and grow, but their spirits shrink. And their need only increases. It's not that food and cars and intellectual stimuli are wrong, or even that they're inferior. They're good for what they're made for, but they're not made to satisfy the soul. For that you need God, but Esau was godless. For that you need faith, but Esau was faithless. And our author says, see to it that you're not. If you miss the grace of God, this is where you end up. One last thing. Esau's foolish choice could not be reversed, and it cost him a great deal of pain and regret. Go, I think it's in chapter 32 or 33 of Genesis, and read how he wept and tried to make it something different. He couldn't do it. Some of you know what that's like. Regret's a constant companion. You know that your life could have been different, and it drives you crazy. 
But here's what you need to know. Even though Esau had to live with the consequences of his choice, he could still experience blessing. The last time we see Esau, he has accepted his loss and he's got on with his life. He's given up his anger. He's genuinely pleased to see his brother. His father had blessed him, if you can call it that, with the promise that he too would finally be free. And he finally was. So if you live with regrets caused by mistakes and sins in the past, know that they can be forgiven and a new and a good path forged in the present. That doesn't mean that the consequences go away. It does mean that God doesn't. God's there for you. Stop living in the regret of the past. And even stop living in the fear of the future. Live in the moment, but don't live for the moment. Live for God. Now let's pray. Lord, speak to us what you want us to hear in our hearts and minds. Lord, your voice isn't like ours. It doesn't flare and disappear. It speaks. And your word remains, so I pray you'll speak your word to our hearts. And help us not to miss your grace, to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.